0: Uh, welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here once again with my uh, friend Brian Kaplan, who's back here for the second time. He's in Italy right now. Uh, he's in Palermo and he's taking time off from his vacation to talk to me now. So I greatly appreciate it. How are you, Brian? I'm doing great. Actually, I'm working here, not just vacationing. I'm
1: teaching a uh, class in immigration at the University of Palermo.
0: Oh, okay. Well, you, you the, all, the, all the photos you post make it sound like so much fun. It doesn't seem like you're doing <laughs> oh, much work, fun. but it's yeah. okay. That's, this is my, that's my this. favorite <laughs> kind of vacation
1: where I have a job, but I also, have fun stuff to do.
0: Gotcha. So you have uh, two books out, and they're both collection of blog posts, right? Uh, one essays is, uh, I, I prefer essays, Richard, but yes <laughs> <laughs> they're essays. did you edit them at all or are they just are they taken from uh, essays taken from the blog? So
1: I didn't edit for content at all. I, I did go carefully through for typos, that kind of thing. I mean the main thing that I did is I went through seventeen years worth of blog posts, several thousand ones, and I tried to pick out about the five percent best posts and then, organize them by theme that's why there's going to be eight different books so there's the first book that you've read on labor economics and then there's the second book on demagoguery and i've got six more coming
0: okay wow that's great yeah so it's great i mean i've been reading you for a while you miss you miss things over the years and so it's great to have this sort of curated uh so oh when i started like... how old were you <laughs> i started at not that i mean i'm 2005 you know, like how old were you Early twenties, I don't know, mid twenties, yeah, all right, you know, mid <laughs> thirties now. So you know, I've been around long enough that I can, you know, have a decade or two decades of reading somebody. It's yeah. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> uh, when did you? When did you start writing publicly? Let's see,
1: writing publicly. Honestly, I was a very early adopter of the World Wide Web. So really, 1993, I found out about web pages, and I immediately made it my own web page and started putting things that I'd written up there. Uh, it was a classic horrifying to the eyes geocities type page I mean, like, like actually like probably like 98th percentile of visual harm <laughs> just just to look at it but that was the style of time richard you have to understand it was a strange period
0: <laughs> sure yeah, so I'm just I you know I'm just old enough to remember the the first era of I'm like old enough and started paying attention to politics long enough to remember like the early days of blogging. So I was like you know <coughs> early two thousands like Andrew Sullivan, The New Republic was a much bigger deal, and then yeah I, I discovered your things you know maybe a little sooner after a little uh, soon after that, uh, so. Yeah, I mean, it's great that it's great to have that collection. I guess we can go through the, um, but while it's fresh on my mind, let's talk about a recent Substack piece that I that I loved, right. uh, the ideologues of GMU. And so the message of this, you know, the message of this Substack is basically, you know, the other academics they're 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 failing. They're failing in a very deep way. It's not that they're just missing the truth, like they have a disagreement with you on some technical issue. It's like the way they, you know, the way they approach their careers. Um, has something deeply wrong with it? Um, can you can you just talk about that a little bit and like why you are different than them? Well, let's
1: see. I mean, you know, if you just think about the way that the typical academic works, they are careerists first. There's a hierarchy that exists. They hear about who are the people that are on top, and then you just try to find out. Well, what do I have to write in order to end up at that position? It is a very difficult. a hierarchy to ascend, you're talking about people with tremendous IQs and work ethics. The problem, I say, is that they really aren't all that interested in saying something important. It's much more about just, especially in economics, writing pieces that are bulletproof, even if they aren't very important. Economists love the idea of, look, we have ironclad causal inference here. You cannot question the causation all right, well, maybe that's right, and maybe you worked on it for five years in order to get that level of certainty, but what if the question isn't very important, or what if the result just doesn't plausibly generalize to anything else that anyone cares about? Isn't it really just the labor theory of value to say that because I worked on it for five years and you have to be really smart to do this kind of work, therefore it's valuable? That is a lot of my critique of what I mean, especially economists do. I mean, like like other fields we know, there are some fields where you really actually can do very well without even working that hard if you've got the right connections. We got the grievance study scandal, which I think did give us an idea about there are fields where it isn't even the labor theory of value that governs, but the social sciences that are higher status like, you know, it, there is a genuine hierarchy. It's not easy to ascend the hierarchy, but that doesn't mean that what they're producing is
0: worthwhile. It's, a, it's, a, it's an emotional labor theory of value. They, they put the emotional work in and then they like uh, <laughs> that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, although yeah. maybe, you know, you know, it's an
1: interesting question as to what their rubric really is, what it takes. I mean, obviously, like, if you or I just wanted to become the number one academic, it would be hard to do. We could put everything we've got into that into that goal and still fail completely. It's not just like it's wolves among the sheep. They've got their own <laughs> evolutionary <laughs> ecosystem set out. Um, so it's you know so even there, like you really have to step back and understand well, how do you get to the top of this thing. It can't be easy, although it's confusing
0: as to what skills the people at the top do have. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm amazed. I mean, when I read your stuff, it's like it's so often I'll read this. I'm like, I was going to write this exact same. It was the exact <laughs> point. I mean, we are so in accord. So when you say labor theory of value in academia, I, I had literally the exact same thought. But I thought about mm-hmm. writing this at one point. I, yeah. It was in the context of trusting the experts, right? This person has a PhD, like mm-hmm. Joe Biden has a PhD or a, whatever mm-hmm. they call the PhD in education. She must know more about fixing the schools than, you know, Elon Musk or somebody like that. It really is somebody did the work. Therefore, we have to. You don't know, respect it. It's uh, yeah, uh, and you're right that that's that's the way I could, that's the way academics think about this, and it's right. You know, I think yeah, obviously it's true that mo- they're they're probably going to be careerists, and most people are careerists. But why why does being a careerist take this form? Why is the hierarchy based on this rather than like having the most awesome and revolutionary and important ideas? Which is you know maybe naively you would think academia should be about. Yeah it's a tough question. I think the the uh, the answer is
1: that you, most human personalities just do not like that kind of thing. It's the kind of thing that is repellent to most people. Most people are looking for a safer, sure path and to really you know, to avoid you know, to keep people from overstepping the limits of what's acceptable. Um, so meaning you know, like it it, it it is hard to really nail it down as to quite what it is. But I mean, the main thing that I, I notice is that sometimes I'll talk to other academics and I'll say like this guy, like Robin Hanson, he's just a genius. And if I have academics say, well, I don't see what that matters. You know, like it doesn't <laughs> matter that he's a genius. It's so important to, to be a genius. And yet, you know, this attitude is actually fairly common. It's not that important to be a genius. What really matters is that you just hunker down and do really solid work. I guess the main way that I would try to understand is just to say even the most nominally revolutionary hierarchies in the world actually become quite inbred and stagnant in a short amount of time. So, you know, the Bolshevik party, they have a couple of years of weird stuff going on with this free love and then. Pretty soon they get rid of all that stuff, and they oh, no, no, no. We're just going to have communist rule, and things are going to be orderly. And then before you know it, there's a really strict doctrine that everyone has to hold. And there's and even though they start off saying the revolutionaries and want to burn the whole world down and build it anew, pretty soon they're some of the most cautious people in the world in a certain strange sense. So I would say that this really is pretty much a human universal that whenever you have a intellectual group. That even if they start off officially committed to being very curious, normally this much deeper human urge for conformity takes over. So yeah, I guess that if I had to really stick my neck out and say what's going on, I would just say that the human desire for conformity is very high, which means that it's just hard to put, to assign too much status to revolutionary thinking because it's not conformist.
0: Yeah, I mean, the conformist thing is is really you know, is is really something there. I was listening, I don't know if you uh, listen to the same podcast. I don't remember uh, the guy's name, but Tyler was interviewing a conversation with Tyler, some, mm-hmm. uh, uh, some, expert on the FDA. Um, I think he was at Harvard. I forget the the guy's name. Um, But Tyler would point out something like, oh, this guy, you know, the FDA did X. Mm -hmm. And like X, you know, clearly, you know, like delaying the vaccine by Mm set amount. And that probably, you know, killed a lot of people. Like, what do you think about this, you know, guy who's expert on FDA? And it was a fascinating conversation because the guy, I just noticed Tyler would do this again and again. And the guy would always sort of twist things to make what the FDA was doing sound reasonable. And like, it was, you know, whatever the decision was, he was always trying to you know find the best possible light in which to mm-hmm. and it wasn't like a steel man you know uh, exercise it was more <laughs> like well the FDA did it so like even though you can show me like this cost 100,000 lives like they could have done another way and you could you could have got 100,000 deaths it, 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 you know it's like a psychological theory like you would have increased you know distrust in the vaccine and like maybe that's true on the margins but like to say that would, when, when you have like a certainty that you you know caused hundreds of thousands of deaths to assume that like it would have been balanced if they did the other thing I don't know why you would do that but it just seemed like you know he really wanted to defend the fda and he really had a bias towards saying you know whatever the fda is doing Mm -hmm. um must be right or rational and i think that's that's common that that is a Mm -hmm. that is a psychological quirk that i think most normal people have Um, which is hilarious
1: because that's one of my running arguments with tyler that i accuse him of doing that (laughs) not specifically with the fda but just rationalizing bad things the government does and saying, "Well, yeah, it's much more complex than you realize? Like, I don't think it's that complex. I think that they're just bad."
0: Yeah. Oh, who was I'm saying? What was the say? they again? who uh, who did you, who did you say was doing that?
1: Uh, Tyler. So, like, wait, like, Edling lunch with Tyler. So many lunches involve me saying there's some terrible thing government's doing, and he's saying, "Well, it's actually really makes sense if you appreciate all the complexities as I do."
0: Uh, ah, yeah, I, I got, got it. So there's a spectrum. So this yes. like, FDA guy. Yeah. Yeah, there's a spectrum. Yes. So like Hart, Tyler's in the middle between that that guy at Harvard yes. and, and you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you, know, so, Tyler, so, you know, Tyler's very good on the FDA specifically.
1: There's other issues where I think he's much more forgiving of very bad stuff. Government does.
0: Yeah, I remember there was, um, I, I had professors like this at the University of Chicago Law School, and they would, you know, they would like, yeah, they would take some development in the law, and then they would like work backgrounds and find out why it was rational. And sometimes the argument made sense, and often the argument just didn't make sense. It seemed like a, mm-hmm. like an intellectual, like you could, if you were motivated to, you know, you could do the math in a way that makes everything, you know, I guess it really depends a lot on what your, what your priors are, mm-hmm. what are these sort of mm-hmm. mechanisms for uh, a government or an institution getting things correctly. Yes. I mean, something that I'm often so, tempted to, to ask academics is just like, you know, are you a
1: lawyer for whatever group you're talking about? I know, yeah, I know they're not, but there is this strange lawyerly mentality that many academics have where they know what side they like and then they argue in a lawyerly way. Well, the lawyer's job is not to say, yeah, I find my client's guilty of sin. It's to keep trying to go and come up with some story where what their client's doing is actually okay, despite the fact that it seems totally indefensible to any neutral person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so the other, I mean, the other thing you do in this article, which I think is cool, this is sort of your, you know, this is part of your, it's not just the argument itself. It's your public persona. I mean, you say at the end, something like, uh, let's see what you say. You know, you say something like, and you know, 30 years, they'll be reading my books and they won't be reading any of you. You know, you top professors publishing at the top journals. Uh, it, it's, uh, I, I like it. I mean, do you, but you know, that, that's not how academics usually talk. Um, I guess, you know, what what I'm wondering about is, like, you know, do you think that, like, is it a thing where, like, you think sort of you have to... you have to have sort of have sharp elbows to sort of get the point across because there's no way polite, you know, there's, there's maybe a polite way of saying these people are doing worthless work and I'm doing work that's worthwhile. And I think it's great that, you know, people are, you know, you think you're doing work that's worthwhile. I think it's great that you're taking it serious, seriously. Um, but it really was sort of like a, it's sort of like a, a you know, a, a more frontal attack than most people are, are comfortable with. How, how do you, how do you think about, you know, sort of just writing like that?
1: Hmm. Well, if you go and read the immediate follow up, this is where I say, you know, I mean, I sincerely mean this in the friendliest possible way. And yeah, if, you, yeah, yeah, if, sure, if you want to talk sure. about how to redirect, you know, to, to, rest- you know, chart a new course in your career, I'd really love to help. And I have actually had some academics take me up on that and email me and say, yeah, well, what can I do? Oh, yeah, you, you convince me. Right? And, 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 and yeah, you know, like, I'm not there with just saying, oh, well, so finally you admit the truth. Ha ha. Like, like, yeah, you know, I, I I can appreciate they've bought themselves painted into a corner and they want to get out and I do want to help. You know, so, like, honestly, like my, oh, you know, like the, the advice that whenever people ask me, if you could go back in time and give any advice to your teenage self, my advice is always you know, be friendlier to people. So even in this piece, I would say that I was not trying to be unfriendly to anyone. I was making a, you know, you know, you know a, I will say a good, a good humor comment on my sense of self-satisfaction and, and really saying, look, if you want to have that same sense, uh, you, you need to go and show in your course. I mean, honestly, like I'm never trying to make people feel bad about themselves. It's just not. No, not I yeah. Yeah. I'm, d- I'm just trying to, you know, so, um, I mean, like, honestly, like, like, you know, when I, as I was writing that, I was like laughing to myself and go, all right, this is very funny, but, <laughs> uh, so that, that, that was the, you know, it's true, but also, you know, funny because it's true, as Homer Simpson says.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, yeah, I know. I, I don't think you're trying to make people feel that. And you, you, you say you're, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're best of intentions. And I, I know, I know that's, I know that's, I'm, I'm sure that's true. Uh, it's just most people would perceive, you know, most people perceiving this would say, you know, it's like, like uh, it's like different Subcultures, different fields—they have different norms. Like the the tone of like your essay, if it was like you know, if you were in a group of I don't know, like factory workers or something, it probably would be like just seen as like you know normal criticism. Mm-hmm. Academia, though, I mean, it seems it seems to be attract a lot of people who are you know unusually sensitive to criticism, and this is and the, you know and this is why I think academics tend not to write like this, right? So there's there's a connection mm-hmm. between sort of the stylistic. I think there's a connection between the stylistic sort of preferences and the um, you know, the more uh, intellectual sort of search for truth. I think you know the fact that you see you have like sort of a high standard of what you consider something that hurts somebody's feelings makes you better at finding truth. While somebody who has just mm-hmm. is like a hypersensitivity that like if you you know if you slightly criticize their work, they're gonna you know they're gonna break down. That person's not gonna ever arrive at truth because you know you need this sort of you need this sort of conflict. You need this adversarial process, where you you know you you see what's right and what's wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean, I also say that the fields that I know best, economics and philosophy, are ones where I think that people's skins just are not that thin. In mean, economics, I know better, but philosophers also. When I've interacted when I've interacted with them, there is a great focus on is, is the argument true or not, rather than well, how can you say such a thing about my beautiful argument? You've hurt my feelings. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, obviously, there's also just a self selection the people that are the individual economists or philosophers that I deal with probably also have thicker skin. Um, I mean, I, I will say that you know, there's probably a difference in person versus in writing. In person, like I'm almost always really happy to be talking to whoever I'm talking to, and it's hard for them to really have their feelings hurt when the person obviously is having a great time chatting with them. Um, you like I don't think I would come off as sadistic or anything like that. Uh, but, you know, when it's in writing, then it's a little bit harder because the person doesn't, you know, especially if the person doesn't know you, then you know, what tone do they ascribe to you when you say something like that? Um, you, know, you, know, just, you know, I just, I will say like, you know, I always focus first and foremost on being correctly understood and expressing myself clearly. And then secondary, once I feel like uh, that's very hard for someone to miss, then try to mark it in a way that's more appealing. Yeah, like my, my trade off is almost, is, is really very strongly like being correctly understood is most important. And then marketing, it can only be something that you add on on top of that without changing the meaning. Because otherwise, yes, you're making friends, but you're making, fr- but you're
0: actually pushing things that are wrong. So what's the point of that? Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, that's all. That's all. I think. Right. So, in your, uh, let's move on to the uh, labor econ Mm -hmm. book. You know what? The way I, you know, I've never. I, I guess I took a microeconomics course. I took one or two classes, and I've never studied economics in depth. I guess the way I think about it is. Basically, every mar- every pro market argument I've ever heard has sounded really good, and every mar- argument against markets has tended to sound bad. And so, it sort of makes it hard for me to investigate, like you know, any particular question. And so, but you actually you come you sort of come to like a conclusion that's similar to this. You have one of your pieces is uh, is about uh, the raising raising the minimum wage, mm-hmm. and then you go through and you like go through the, some like graphs and tables and other people's uh, work, and then at some point you say like. You know my priors are just very very hard and they are very very strong in the favor of um, uh, that. You know raising the price of labor will decrease mm-hmm. uh, uh, decrease the demand for for labor, and like economics is not good enough to overcome that that prior. And if that's like I was reading that, and I'm like if that's the case, like. You know, why study economics? (laughs) We have the prior that like markets are good, and very rarely do we have research that um, you know can overcome that prior. I mean, does that indicate that you know maybe like there's not that much return to actually studying the specifics in most cases? So I would say no. I
1: mean, I think what I actually said there was I you know I have a very strong prior that every demand curve will have a negative slope. So that is the is, is, is the is the first part. So it's not specifically labor. It's just like for any particular good that has that that like, no one has ever written a paper on probably no one has ever written a paper about the, what the shape of the demand for asparagus curve. And I'll say, I don't need to have any paper to start off with a strong view that that actually has the normal negative slope. Uh, in terms of the, you know, the, like how much you can change your mind, you know, like, like I mean, I'm, I'm very willing to say, look, you start with a strong prior, you can still move in a marginal direction, but yeah, it's probably not going to be very much in, you know, given the quality of the work. Although I think in that same piece, I also go over the evidence that exists and say, look, there are multiple bodies of evidence that are relevant. And yes, I say I put a lot more weight on a larger body of evidence that is very closely related in in terms of relevance, even though we don't market it this way. For for example, there's a large body of work on European unemployment, blaming European unemployment on European labor market regulation. All right, Then you have a separate literature on the effects of minimum wage. Right. And most people work on the minimum wage will just say that work on European labor market regulation is just a separate literature. You can't go and use that evidence here to go and weigh in on this question. And my reaction is, well, of course I can. It's all part of the same but It's all empirical work. It's it's related. And if you're going to say, no, no, you can't generalize from from European labor markets in general to low-skilled labor markets in America, it's like, well, if you're going to say that, then you can't generalize from New Jersey to Florida. We can't generalize from 1990 to 2020. So what are you talking about? If you really are going to be so unwilling to take evidence from one area and apply it to another, then really what's the point of doing this? So, you know, that's where I would really say there's not much point of doing the work if it, if you don't think that it has broader relevance or what researchers call external validity, external validity. This is where you know, you know, you have the most ironclad experiment, but is this close enough to anything in the real world that we should care?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's right. So you could, I mean, you could come Mm -hmm. to that conclusion that most cases, external validity is not that, you know, is not that strong. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah. So, so I guess you have to, you just have to have like Mm -hmm. a, you have to have a prior here and then, you know, that determines, you know, so much. And, you know, I think you're, yeah, I'm glad you're sort of up up front about that. Um, but you have, I think, a very, you have a very interesting argument against minim, uh, the minimum wage that I hadn't heard before, which is the unique harm of unemployment, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so basically, what the minimum wage people say is, you know, we want to raise the, you know, the wage from, you know, some number of workers from whatever, 12 to $15. And, you know, they're a little bit better off. But if the cost is... You know, the cost is more unemployment. The, you know, the uh, unemployment is a unique evil that goes beyond you know mm-hmm. just having a slightly lower wage. Can you talk about sort of the harms of unemployment? Right. So the background
1: for this is there's actually a lot of economists who say, look, sure, the minimum wage does reduce employment somewhat, but. It also raises wages. And if we go and do cost-benefit analysis, we see that the total amount of extra money that is transferred to workers exceeds the loss due to, you know, due to the higher wages, exceeds loss from the unemployment. And the unemployment's not a big deal anyway, because we'll just give those guys some welfare or unemployment checks and they're going to be fine. All right. And my response to this is if you go over psychology and happiness research, one of the strongest findings is that unemployment per se causes great misery, even if you have a full adjustment for income. In other words, you know, the loss of income from losing a job is not the main reason why unemployed people are unhappy. It's more of a sense of meaninglessness and uselessness and just not having anything to do or any place to go. For me, COVID really drew this home because of course, officially I was still fully employed. I never didn't have any pay cut during COVID. And yet I had this feeling of meaninglessness and just having no place in society anymore because my office is closed. I don't see anyone anymore anymore. Some people seems like the internet alone, that's enough for them. And for me, <laughs> yeah, when I was that's, not actually, that's my life. Yeah. yeah. But for me, not seeing and interacting with real people, you know, like it, it was just like I was all by myself and you know, and it was very distressing for me. So I really could, you know, you, you know, I I could already empathize with how it's really, really feels bad to be unemployed, but what it happens to you, this is like, wow, this is happening to me now. And now I have this personal firsthand experience with the meaninglessness of just having no place and, no, and not being part of anything anymore. Uh, very painful. right? So anyway, empirical research on unemployment has usually said that the loss to happiness from unemployment is you know, comparable to you know, like, you know, several times your, your actual earnings. Um, what this means then is that when and by the way, here's here's the, what's really fascinating to me. Normally, people think of this as a left wing point. They normally think it's a left wing point to say that unemployment per se is bad, and we and we need to take this problem really seriously. And yet, somehow, in the minimum wage literature, they totally forget this, or maybe never heard it. And I say, yeah, well, really, you know, it is much better for human flourishing for wages to be lower, and it'd be really easy to get a job than to push wages up and possibly push uh, the net income of workers up. And even if you could go and give everyone who lost their job compensation so they don't ever need to work again, uh, this is just not a good life for them. It's something where it really feels terrible for people. Much better if they they just have really any old job rather than nothing.
0: Yeah. Does this – I mean, this must vary – You know, I think about like sort of residential patterns. So I think uh, losing your job and you live in a suburb is probably, uh, you know, it's easier to get disconnected from people than if you live in a city. Um, If you have a big family versus if Mm -hmm. you have no family. I mean, I know people from traditional societies who are happy to, uh, you know, immigrants and other people who are happy to just sort of visit relatives and and family all day. It seems like it would be like in in a sort of American context where we're often in suburbs, we're often far away from other people physically. And we often don't have large families that this would be, you know, particularly bad. I think the European results
1: were quite similar, but I mean, you, of course, you can say a lot of Europeans—you know—they've got small families. Um, I think there was there was there was actually at least one paper saying that if sort of your whole social group becomes unemployed, like in a British mining town after they close down the coal mine, then maybe you don't feel this sense of meaninglessness because basically you and all your unemployed buddies just go to the pub and hang out every day. I mean, even that, I think, you can get a sense of it would get old after a while, and. The idea, of, well, like, like, we're a bunch of guys, we hang out, but what do we really do? What do we contribute? What are we part of? Or well, we're part of a group of guys that drinks beer together every day while we receive welfare checks. It doesn't seem like a very satisfying life.
0: Yeah. Have you um, Have you ever written applying this this idea about the evils of unemployment to UBI? I think I might have seen a blog post like that. Hmm. I'm trying to remember whether I did that
1: specifically. I did write a, a piece just called The Grave Evil Unemployment criticizing other free market economists for saying that unemployment isn't that bad. And I said, look, it's terrible. <laughs> right? I mean, this was, you know, during the great recession, there actually were like, a lot, a lot, a you of know, you know, people that I knew friends just uh, saying, Oh, well, what's the big deal? People get like a vacation. There's like extended unemployment benefits. i like, like what, a, what a strange and psychologically foolish view to think that someone who's lost their job and you know, like is doing fine just because they're getting this money. And especially because there's so much insight the free market economics has on how we can get unemployment down and keep it down, really just all of the government regulations that myopically try to push wages up as if that's going to be a free lunch, and just to you know keep pushing that, right? And, you know, and of course, uh, you and I also know in the United States probably one of the big issues is discrimination law, right? Where people are nervous to hire someone that might sue them. Right? and then the people that are well that are well protected by discrimination law probably actually have
0: more trouble finding a job because of that. Yeah. Yeah, the the so, you know, it seems like you know, I've worked like uh, uh, like uh, normal jobs like as a teenager. I worked in like restaurants and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And yeah, I mean it, it seems like I think that a lot of people would like You know, there's flexibility. Like, I, you know, I really hate one thing that gets to me, you know, because the flexibility is so important because people can have all kinds of preferences, right? If Mm. the only job available is like, you know, a minimum wage and, you know, you have to work 35 hours a week, like somebody might, you know, find that, you know, miserable. And if Mm. you give people like the odd, you know, the, they just want to get out of the house and do stuff and, you know, they want to work 10 hours a week for $3 an hour, some token, you know, token Mm -hmm. amount like that's, you know, that's illegal. Um, And I think about like these people who complain about like the gig economy and it's like, Mm -hmm. Oh, it's bad because, you know, you set your, you know, the the pain is not that bad. You know, when you look at it, compared to a lot of other things, but it's like, it's, you know, people just sort of see it as bad because it's not like, you know, nine to five in an office and clocking in and all that other stuff. And, you know, it's like, it also gets around a lot
1: of stupid regulation.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does get California trying like to
1: treat Uber drivers as if they're employees. I mean and this is where, you know, of course there's the, the the general absurdity of this distinction between the employee and the independent contractor and look, it's all just semantics anyway. But California trying really trying to to regulate it to ensure that you can't escape regulation just by calling yourself self-employed.
0: Yeah, that's and it's amazing. I wonder how much of our, you know, sort of uh, uh, economic sort of strength and you know uh, uh, progress can be attributed to a sort of innovation in the private sector to get around you know stupid government regulations. Because this is just a very obvious case where you know a lot of things gravitated towards this contractor economy, which was mm-hmm. just you know easier to hire and fire, and you know it's less regulated than the than oh, the.
1: Yeah, striking, especially how even universities with all their bleeding hearts still will standardly outsource their janitorial services. And other jobs like that and in this way they don't have to get involved and they don't have to get their hands dirty with actually paying workers low wages right no no, no. this is a contract with someone else whatever they do is their business it's not, nothing to do with me right and you know but you know like you know, your, your typical kind of thing where if anyone else did it <laughs> then people in universities would be you know, at, at minimum tutting or maybe blowing their minds over it whereas you know they do it themselves and don't seem to have any problem with it is how, how could you criticize us? We're so wonderful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Switching the topic to, uh, to immigration. Did you see this tweet that was getting retweeted a lot? It was about this, uh, this guy goes into his dentist's office and the person at the front desk is not a person. It's a computer screen with a woman from the Philippines. I actually saw it on your Twitter. I was reading it over right before this interview,
1: just catching up with what you're doing. Um, yeah, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, a great story as to whether it's actually going to be scalable. Um, you know, like you know, the zoom era has shown us that things are at least more scalable than we had previously thought. Uh, at the same time, there is a lot of pressure on people to go back to work. There must be some reason why we hadn't outsourced all this stuff before. I would think, um, you know, so meaning you know, like to me, what's, what's really striking is that as of the last time that I checked, I looked into this about five years ago. You know, basically, if you know, when an Indian programmer moved to the Bay Area, tripled his salary. Right now, it's easy to say, well, that's just because competition requires them to do that, but it's like, well, wait a second. Why are there any programmers in the Bay Area if, it's, if that's all there is to it? Why have they moved all their programming jobs to India already? There's got to be some productivity gain from having those programmers physically present, even if it's a bit hard to articulate. Probably the best story that I've heard is that It's especially hard to start a new business with everyone being virtual. It may be that once you build up a regular team spirit and a way of functioning, then you can go to virtual from there. But to be virtual in your entirety at all levels is just hard in terms of building a team psychology or something like that. I know that doesn't seem fully convincing, but... The other alternative is that businesses are stupidly paying triple what they need to for the same quality of work, which also sounds pretty hard to book. Well, I mean,
0: weird. I mean, that an obvious answer is, but maybe the technology is not so reliable. We're having connection troubles, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, right here as we speak. So, mm-hmm. you know, you could imagine that it's not reliable enough for for a lot of uh, businesses. It's that specific case. Just mm-hmm. why isn't why isn't your all it's just someone from the the Philippines?
1: Right. Although in the case of programmers, yeah, we, it seems like it's like you know. Like, we, you know almost everything they were doing was actually doable just by a old fashioned email you didn't even need video so for email that almost everyone on earth has very reliable service because the amount of you know, the amount of bits that you're sending is almost nothing even for an incredibly detailed computer program that's probably nothing compared to one hour movie in low resolution
0: yeah yeah, that, that, that's right. You know, I mean, one thing I love in your books, I love when anyone does this, but you, you know, you do this often is that where you sort of say some uncomfortable truth that both sides don't like. So, you know, there's a one or two essays where you talk about sort of like the, uh, the poor and how they're morally bl- blameworthy. Oh, yeah. um, and then, like, I think that's I think that's like you know the left the people on the left would say that's horrible. But then I think at, at one point you compare them unfavorably to like the poor from the third world, right? And I mm-hmm. think you do this maybe implicitly in the uh, stuff on the success yeah. sequence. It's like you know those people like in the you know poor people in the Philippines or Mexico, like you know that you could say it's not their fault. But like America, and you know that that that's that's a terrible message to left wing people. That's a terrible message to right wing people who are more who are more nationalist, right? But uh, yeah, I mean. You, your view is that there, we should blame the poor for their circumstances, and the first world poor are probably the most blameworthy people of all. Is, is that right? Right, You're overstating a bit, but yes, you know, just <laughs> to say that
1: bad behavior is one important cause of poverty—that's what I will definitely stand up for. Right. I mean, like, like you know, of course, honestly, a lot of the poor are children, and I wouldn't blame them at all. It's not their fault; their parents don't have their acts together. Right job. You know, like you know, there there is this old saying of you know, oh well, you're blaming them for choosing the wrong parents, and which is you know an obvious dig at how unfair that is. And I say, yeah, it's unfair to go and blame poor kids because their parents don't have their act together. Unfair to blame people in the third world because they happen to be born there. I and mean, well, it's the same argument. If you don't choose your parents; it's not your fault, uh, for that. But on the other hand, if you have you're an able-bodied adult and you won't get out of bed and go and do a job, then yeah, like that seems like that seems pretty bad. Right? Or if you have kids that you – know, you know, if you have unprotected sex when you are not prepared to support a child. Right? This seems like very blameworthy behavior to me. Uh, you like, what is, the, what is the plan exactly? Right? And by the way, you know, like one of the things that I find most fascinating in reading research on this, often it's by very left-wing sociologists who would never go and blame the poor for anything, but the best ones are still very empirical. They actually talk to people and they report what the people actually say. Uh, so there's a great book called "Promises I Can Keep" about single moms. What you find is that no one on earth has a more negative view of the parents of the children of single moms and the single moms themselves. <laughs> they just think these guys are terrible, right? And they describe their bad behavior. And all right, we haven't. You know, there's actually a, a follow-up book by one of, one of the authors on the single dads, uh, so we get their side as well. But you know, it really you know. Whatever perspective you're coming from, a lot of it is just guys have unprotective sex without thinking about the future, and then they have a kid and they don't feel like taking care of the kid. And then the kid has a really tough life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. None of this is like, you know, not this I think is like should be surprising, like intuitively, that, you know, there's people with bad judgment. And it's funny that the lack of blameworthiness, I mean, another thing you point out is basically it's very selective, right? They'll say, Oh, "Oh, it's society or it's racism or the greed of capitalists. (laughs) And it's never like, well, those people aren't, you know, responsible for their circumstances. It's always, there's always blame. I've never seen the ideology that doesn't put the blame on somebody somewhere. Yes. I mean, if you just think about how,
1: how eager to blame the, the cancellation movement is this one person said one wrong thing, let's destroy his life. Right. But, you know, like if you were to go and say, well, like, is, re- is it really the Nazis fault? you know, like, like he grew up in a racist culture. Of course, he is this way. Can't blame him for that. This is where almost everyone will draw the line and say, no, 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 no. He had a choice. It's like, all right. Well, yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah you don't have to be a Nazi. And you know what else? You don't have to have unprotected sex. You don't have to drink when you when, <laughs> drink on the job. There's a, you know, like all of this stuff these things that you don't have to do. And furthermore, they're like, this is not a big ask either. I mean, it's true that you're know, like, you know, so if someone were to say, sure, this person could work his way out of poverty, would require him to go and work on a fishing boat in Alaska. And, uh, you know, like, you know, and that's the only way he can escape from poverty. Like, like, you know, and like, are you really going to blame that person when he just doesn't want to go and give up everything that he has to live, to, to be on a boat in the Arctic. And it's like, all right, I can understand that. But it's just a matter of like, will you get out of your bed and show up at your job on time. Like like any old job, just being you know, being a greeter at Walmart or wherever. Will you go and provide for your kids? Uh, will will you refrain from drinking when you need to be sober? You know, very basic stuff like this. This is not a big ask, and of course, it is a ma- these are major causes of poverty, and of course, just generally having your life messed up, right? Uh, again, of course, there always is some deeper philosophical story of no, no, they can't possibly help it. Um, here, I've got some. Um, other other work where I actually just go over well, what is the evidence on how on the responsiveness of of the, this kind of behavior to incentives? Uh, you know, so for example, like you know, there's good evidence that the demand for alcohol is actually quite elastic. Right, when you raise the price of alcohol, this leads to substantial reductions in drinking, which to me says, look, to say that a person can't stop drinking and then you raise the price and they stop, it shows they could have before right so if changing you know so i mean this is the deeper philosophical point but it just says if changing someone's incentives changes their behavior it shows that they were capable of changing their behavior before if they just didn't want to given the previous incentives
0: yeah yeah, one thing I mean that gets to me, I when I hear, I was watching some, some, somebody, uh, some activist interviewed, and he said, you know, we have to treat drug addiction like a disease, like any other disease. So there's no blame, <laughs> more blameworthiness. It's like someone gets, you know, a disease or so, you know, a, a physical disease. And I'm like, look, it doesn't work like that. If you take someone with, with cancer and you put a gun to their head, and say yes. I don't have cancer anymore. Yeah. That, that 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 doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. respond to incentives, mm-hmm. right? And like, what an insult to say these people who you know are, are smoking crack or doing heroin, you know, are, are in the same position of unblameworthiness as someone who gets cancer or someone who has a stroke or something. I mean, I, I just find it, you know, morally, it's just it's just it's just awful. I mean, to put those to make those things equivalent.
1: Now, speaking of our strange tendency to think alike I actually have an article on the economics of mental illness with a whole section on this gun what I call the gun to the head test uh, of yeah. like if you, if you actually <laughs> get incentives high enough does this lead to a change in behavior which shows that there is a difference between what people call mental illness and regular old physical illness yeah you can't just say yeah you're right you're, you're totally right uh, i think the paper <laughs> from 2005 in a way i was it's, it's my, maybe my article that I was most pleased that I was able to publish it, I actually didn't publicize it until it was in print. Because even, you know, even before cancellation was a thing, I was thinking, this is something that's so incendiary, I could actually see someone trying to go and get the editor to pull the plug on this article, and I really wanted it to
0: see print. Uh-huh. Did you bring up uh, Mao and, and, and sort of how Mao got rid of opium uh, addiction in China? So, I don't think I did that one. I mean, you
1: know, I've been I, there, 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 there were a number of other art- articles on just the price sensitivity. And there's actually a kind of therapy for addiction that just consists in if you've been conforming, then you get better treatments and you get goodies and money. And if you don't, then you can lump it. Right. So, and, and it seems, you know, it seems it's, it's, it's rated as one of the more effective treatments.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's the, the cross-cultural stuff too is very interesting and you have, you know, poor traditional societies where they have no drugs and they have no legitimacy. And then you have like mm-hmm. richer societies that do and You have some richer mm-hmm. societies that, you know, don't have these things. So obviously the, the what's like, what's a culture? A culture is something that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. creates incentives to do things or not do things through, you know, shame, so through, you know, f- through both financial stuff and through, uh, uh, just sort of uh, social interaction and clearly these things. So yes, drug addiction and like bad behavior more generally, it clearly follows the pattern of things that we consider in people's control. It doesn't follow the pattern of cancer or AIDS or or dwarfs of something that's clearly uh, physical. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. So are you, are you, um, so you were working, uh, the last few times we talked, you were working on uh, two books. Which one's the priority now? Is it the, the poverty who's to blame or is it the housing one? Yeah. So the housing one I'm wrapping up and actually before I get back
1: to the poverty one, there is Another book that I am trying to write first. Part of it is I feel like I might have it written mostly in my head already, and so I could just get it done very quickly. Uh, the tentative title of this book is "Unbeatable," and I'm still working on the exact subtitle. But I, I think the, the, the subtitle I'm currently leaning leaning towards is "The Brutally Honest Case for Free Markets." Uh, yeah. So this is this is one in a way where I just want to take all of my thoughts about economics and especially the and see what's the and and, and especially like you know, not just market failure theory, but how government works in the real world. To uh, you know, sort of basically give give a, a more popular defense of free markets, you know of, you know, of the kind that Milton Friedman did in Free to Choose. But I think we now just have much better arguments than he had back then, uh, and especially we just have a better understanding of where government is screwing up most egregiously. So, you know, like like for, for example, like like you know, this is where the you know, where the housing will play in. But, you know, like now we've got this very very strong evidence that government regulation in the U.S. is basically double the price of housing, right? Which is you know, one of the largest parts of your budget. So this is not like doubling the price of chewing gum. This is doubling the price of of, a, of one of the most critical goods for for human well being. And the economics is really quite clear cut is if you don't hand out permission to build more stuff, then the few things that are already around will have a really high price and people will have to endure those really high prices. But if you would just go and let people build stuff, then the price would go back down again and we would enjoy a a, a much better, much better life. And especially when you just go and do the math on what the gains we're talking about are, they are enormous. We're talking about, you know, like, so, you know, like, you know, like you know, at least twenty percent, a twenty percent increase in GDP from having very radical deregulation of housing. And just to get an understanding of, you know, like there's this old line from P.G. O'Rourke: uh, giving money and power to government is like handing whiskey and curkeys to teenage boys. And this is a nice example because you give government the power to go and regulate housing. There's some obvious externalities and problems. And what do they actually do? What they actually do is just wind up strangling a market that was working uh, very well before. And so the fact that you can, in a textbook, go and come up with some theoretical case for why government could improve things, doesn't, in no way shows that if you actually hand that power to government, they will improve things. And I think now we've got really strong evidence for very important markets, the government uh, uses this power to go and make things worse. And again, understand, well, but why are they making things worse? And the answer is because these regulations sound good. The regulations sound good. Saying, look, oh, you know, like you shouldn't be able to go and block people's views, all right. Well, fine. Let's go and pay way more for housing so that we can have slightly better views. That makes a lot of sense. But in a political context, that in contest, that's not going to sound very good. Or you know, like, you know, like tearing down historic buildings. Like, look, you know, we got enough historic buildings. If the mar- if people aren't willing to pay enough to keep them up, then what's the big deal? Let's just tear them down, and there'll be plenty of there'll be plenty of other historic buildings. <laughs> Again, it's one where it's, yeah. oh, well, we just make this small concession to government. Then you realize now, like when you make that small concession, eventually it does metastasize into this grotesque policy that we have, which has had these horrible overall effects. So it would have been much better to have drawn the line at the first thing and saying, no, if it's your building, it doesn't matter if it's historic, you're free to tear it down and put something new there
0: yeah you know the, it's funny when you say it's because it's um you know just we do this stuff because it sounds good and it's funny when you listen to people's like ex- other explanations of like why um like these things are expensive and why policy doesn't work so mm-hmm. on the left you have this sort of you know this blame capitalist things now that's you yeah. know gotten the blessing of uh joe biden recently so the highest levels of the democratic party and that's normal on the right you have this sort of uh, this sort of populist you know uh, it's foreigners doing it or it's like you know some elites they don't want you to have a family because they want you to <laughs> a pod person and you know just be manipulated by Google. And you know, these people go in these like strange conspiratorial directions. And it's like, you know, do you need that? I mean it sounds good. It's like it, these are the policies. We could show you how they work. And it doesn't, it's like people need the blame. They need they need a conscious agent doing something to them doing something to them, right? It can't just be people mm-hmm. are stupid and you know they're, they're uh, responding to normal incentives and they're responding to public opinion and things that sound good. And, and that's all there is to it. I mean, that's sufficient. You don't need much more beyond that. I mean, especially
1: the idea that ugly truths exist is very hard for people to admit in politics. You know, The idea that, look, if we just were to go and tear down half the historic buildings and rebuild, the price of housing would fall 10% in major cities. And that's a great deal. Very hard to make. Very hard for people to say that or to admit it, even though I think that, of course, the world is full of ugly truths. How could it not be?
0: But is that is that an ugly truth? What the conspiracy theory <laughs> that there's a cabal of evil people? Who or it sounds much uglier to me. So if you, some people are sort of uh, attracted to something that's you know ugly as long as it gives them sort of a target to go after. Hmm. Well. See, that's, you know, that's an
1: interesting point. I'd say, I mean, j- just just to uh, sound like Gilbert and Sullivan, well, there's ugly truths and ugly truths. The, you know, There's the ugly truth of our enemies are terrible and they are trying to destroy us. But that isn't really an ugly truth for the person saying it. It's actually one that makes them feel great and lets them feel you know, superior to the people they're talking about and lets them bond with their friends. But then there's the ugly truth that sounds ugly to almost everyone. Things like, uh, uh, let's see, what's, what's a really nice example saying, so, you know, how about like, you know, many children are stupid. That's an ugly truth. Of course, many children yeah, are stupid,
0: yeah.
1: right? Now, many children Maybe are stupid, you, but that's Jared.
0: one where no, no,
1: almost no one on earth can really feel good at saying that. It's not like saying the Republicans are stupid, where they're our enemy and we can laugh at them. This is more one where it's like, well, no, no, every children is special. Every children is smart. Every child is smart. Like, well, no, they're not. How could that be? That's like saying every child
0: is tall. It makes no sense. Yeah, so this this sort of gets it to your you know your second book how evil are politicians mm-hmm. and I I, I I like this because this is you know I thought again you know all thought sort of the same way I mean your argument is that you know if you have a lot of power and you don't exercise due diligence uh, to find out like you know whether, whether what you're saying or what you're advocating for or what you're doing you know makes any sense then yeah you're you're evil I mean I think that's a, I think that's a mm-hmm. fine definition like if the definition of evil is you have to like want to sadistically torture people you know I, I think mm-hmm. that's Gonna, uh, that's gonna not gonna apply to many people. Um, it, it's broader than politicians, though, right? Because mm-hmm. it also applies to say journalists or activists, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of activists, I'd say, for well, the vast majority, don't seem to do any kind of cost benefit analysis when they mm-hmm. advocate for you know whatever the, whatever they want. Are they are they also you know are, are they also evil? Is everyone who pays attention to politics basically evil, except a, a small minority? I guess is is that the implication of your of your book?
1: There are degrees. So I mean, I, I, I do pick on the politicians because they have so much power. And you know, even if you're just a city councilman, still, normally, that's billions of dollars. And human and as well as human freedom, you're passing laws, people go to jail for breaking these laws. So I'll put very high moral responsibility on them. But yeah, but also for journalists or activists, people that are influential, you know, it's, a, you know, it's a sliding scale, right? And then I'm also very happy to make your usual common sense adjustments for I'm not going to hold a 14-year-old to the same standard of a 40-year-old. A um, you know, 14-year-old is still just figuring things out, and when they say something ridiculous, it's like, all right, well, maybe the kid has never actually even heard the objections yet, so give him a break. 40-year-old is like, all right, I think you're old enough that you should have figured this out by now, and you haven't, and yeah, like what you're doing is quite bad. Uh, not as bad as you know, locking up hundreds of thousands of people for smoking marijuana or something like that. But nevertheless, uh, you know, it was pretty bad. Yeah. So yeah, I think you know, a lot of journalists, I think it's fair to say that what they what that, you know, they really should have thought a lot harder about what they were saying and not just gone with the ideology of other people around them. You know, you know just the general point of, if you look at almost any other human society throughout history and you can, and as an outsider, you can see, wow, they were doing some really bad stuff and people, people should have thought harder about whether what they were doing was okay. And then to think, well, but in our society, I don't need to bother doing that. Our society is so good, I can just default to assuming that what we do is fine. It's like, like how would you imagine that's true? That, to, like, that the idea that like you just got so lucky, you're in the one society in history with clean hands. Come on. I mean, You might say there's some ways in which society is better, but just to say it's like I don't need to go and second guess what's popular in this society... Right, You know, evolutionarily, of course, it's pretty obvious why people don't put much effort into this, you know, like questioning what to go with the popular views in your society gets you pushed off a cliff if you're in a primitive society. Uh, but still say, yeah, well, you're not going to get it pushed off a cliff now. So
0: you really should
1: try harder to think before you
0: speak. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot, of, you know, when what I, what I uh, read you and I listen to a lot of people, um, a lot of people who um, who write and sort of, you know, people who are like rationalists who try to be, you know, good faith, you know, understanders of other people and try to, you know, weigh the uh, relative merits of ideas, they often have this um, they often have this uh, habit of uh, steel manning, uh, consciously mm-hmm. steel manning the opponent. And I've always thought, okay, that's like sort of good to do as an intellectual exercise. Mm-hmm. I worry that if you're so used to steel manning, often you get a distorted sense of your opponents, like the steel man, oh, yeah. you have you start to get you start to think too highly of them. Um, so it's like it's like I could steal man like some person who's gonna you know want some intervention in the labor market and I can it's very easy to convince myself like okay this is what they would do but if that's not the accurate view then if that Ooh. person has power or influence, they're gonna do the stupid thing. so you don't want a steel man you don't want a straw man right uh, you right, want a yeah. steel man for understanding but for practicality you want, you want an accurate view of your opponents right? Yeah. So I have a, a
1: an essay. I'm not sure if it's actually in How Evil Are Politicians or if it's going to be in another book, but it's called The Straw Man, Straw Man. And it says, look, there's a lot of arguments that are in fact popular among advocates of view that are very foolish. And to go and attack those arguments is not attacking a straw man because it's not some stupid argument that you f- that is not actually believed by your opponents that you've voiced upon them. You're actually listening carefully and saying they really said it. So I'm going to respond to the argument they really said rather than the argument that they should have said. Um, so, so, yeah, you know, I mean, it's you know, like steel manning is indeed a, like a great thing to train yourself doing. But also it should not supplant actually listening to real human beings that disagree with you to get an idea of what's going on inside of their heads. I mean, I found often the smartest people have the very poorest understanding of what most people think because they really just can't imagine <laughs> the, le- the, le- the level of impulsive folly that most people subscribe to. I mean, th- this is a uh, argument that I've had with Robin Hanson for decades. Where Robin says, well, I mean, we, what's really going on is that liberals are more concerned about adverse selection, and, and conservatives are more concerned about moral <laughs> And I say, like, Robin, neither of those groups, <laughs> 98, 95% of those groups have never heard of either of these things you're talking about. And this has nothing to do with how they form their views at all. And he's like, well, then what? What is it? <laughs> I say, well, first of all, not that, and then second of all, let, let's go and actually listen to some of them, and what they, and not they're not just the best, not just the very smartest representative of view. Go and listen to some real people wh- with this. And honestly, you know, I will say that if firsthand experience plays any role in my thought, it's the firsthand experience of arguing with my own dad, who is a very frustrating person to talk to. As far as I know, he's never read anything I've written. Right? And he really does just let his anger be his news for every issue. Like, who am I angry about? Like, that's the problem. Right? So you know, he's the angriest anti-immigration person that I personally know, probably. And <laughs> it's not that he has you know, again; it's not that he has some subtle arguments. It's just the most simple-minded arguments. And my dad is a very smart guy. You know, he's got a PhD in electrical engineering out of all the people i know i think he might be most capable of getting me alive off of a desert island if i was stranded with him he's very practical he knows how to build things fix things make things but in terms of the world of ideas he takes that intellect and he just turns the dial down to zero pretty much
0: yeah and it's, uh, it's this is not mysterious either i mean it, it, it's it's the it's the incentive problem it feels mm-hmm. good to it feels good to you know it feels good to hate someone <laughs> it feels good to indulge no. this stuff
1: and, and thinking, I mean, one of my favorite conversations is, with my dad or most illuminating i was explaining the idea of betting markets to him and then i sing you know, like for example you could have a betting market on will the iraq war increase terrorism or reduce terrorism measured by number of deaths and he heard all this He goes, yes but but we are but like i want to invade them we're going to invade them what's the what, what will your betting market get me basically for him, the only thing a betting market could possibly do is to veto his victory that he's already achieved. So what's the point? Like, well, the point is to find out whether the policy that you're pushing for these reasons actually is, is likely to achieve those. But that was just not on his mind at all. It was, look, I know what I want to happen. I, and don't try to confuse me with, it's unclear whether this will work. It's the tool that really is what he wants to what that he, what that he wants to apply it's not what the tool builds um, when we're talking politics of course when he's repairing antique automobiles he's all business
0: yeah i mean so it's it's you know it's it's uh it's a very pessimistic view of humanity i mean it's it's one that i i shared too it's like you know it's like the politics and thinking about public affairs and civic engagement these are supposed to be noble Right mm-hmm. Uh endeavors, like the you know one of the most noble things people can do, and you know we we like encourage people to you know there was a poll I, I saw somewhere where it said like more people fought, felt an obligation to vote than they felt to be informed about any issues. Right? It's like <laughs> wait a minute, like you know we 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 prioritize just speaking over, and it, it's like uh and it's like you know it, it's hard to it's hard to sell to people. I mean, I think w- one flip side of this is you know, people are off, you know, can we, can we, can we sort of, uh, mix into the medicine, you know, some little bit of a sweetener, I guess, for for sort of public relations person, pe- uh, for public relations purposes, and I, I guess it, it could be along the lines of look, people are often very, very innovative, um, smart, um, they have good instincts when it comes to their personal lives. Mm-hmm. Not everyone, right? We about the, the <laughs> God, <social> now, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not not everyone, but in general, like in general, yes, mm-hmm. most people, most even the single mothers. I mean, they're responding to incentives. Like mm-hmm. we don't have any calculus. like we don't like. You can say, well, they're in poverty because they had 10 kids rather than, you know, stayed sober and got a job. But like, who knows that that would be a happier life? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe having 10 kids and living on welfare is as long as they're not going to starve. Maybe that is the sort of a happiness maximizing um, direction, even though it looks bad, you know, in a database or, or whatever. Uh, so, you, you, so, you, so it's like... Yeah, humans are dumb. Yes, humans are very smart. Yes, it's just incentives. It's incentives all the way down, and you just have to sort of keep drilling this into people's heads. You know, is, is that is that sort of the best message to hmm. take to the public, to the rest of the public that like me or you might 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 have a little bit more of an inclination to uh, social desirability bias?
1: Hmm. I guess you know my main reaction is you know, most people are actually very politically apathetic. They don't really care very much about this stuff. And as a result, I don't judge them very harshly for their foolish views about it because it's not really something that they are doing anything much about or thinking about. And instead, I try to focus on, well, what are they doing with their lives? Um, so, like honestly, like you know, I like almost everybody. Like <laughs> I, mean, I like some people I get bored with after a while, but you know, like there's almost no human being that I don't enjoy talking to for five minutes at least. Uh, you know, like you know, during COVID, the isolation was just killing me. I mean, like, and like, yeah. The older I get, the more I enjoy just talking to almost anybody and just you know, finding out what's going on with their lives. And you know, like, and you know, most people are not political fanatics who are trying to go and ram their silly views down your, your throat. They barely even care about it. Uh, so, yeah, you know, so that, that is that why works, that works, evil how evil are politicians rather than how evil are human beings. So, you know, the same way that politicians, I think, have a very high moral responsibility for due diligence because they have so much power. Also, say most people don't have much responsibility for it because they have basically no power at all.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like that. So you don't judge people too harshly for their politics because their politics are about as morally Mm -hmm. relevant as you know their opinion on uh, uh, what's their favorite flower or something. It's just, it's just Mm -hmm. you know, it it has no meaning for the rest of the world. It is a harsh Mm -hmm. judgment, though, on politicians and the activist class i mean it's not a you you, you know you say it's it's politicians are the worst but it's like a lot of people care about politics or Mm -hmm. tweeting about all the day or have a really emotional state even if they're not doing anything i mean they you know they 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 wish they had the power to do a lot of things that's a that's a quite you know substantial portion of the population so you do have to have just an extremely you know your your worldview and i think my worldview is just you know it's like the dimension of like how negatively you view like people Mm -hmm. involved in politics it's like we're at the maximum end of like, you know, bad morally and intellectually, right? I mean, there's, there's no, there's, there's sort of going. You can definitely
1: go further, but yes, I mean, you know, like, like I'm not at the point where I'll refuse to be in the room with a politician in a way. A lot of it is just, well, I'm just curious what's going on here and what they'll say. What would be the point of me walking out and make, and making a, a, a loud gesture about that? Probably partly is it's just not in my personality to want to be in, in direct personal conflict with someone in that way. I'd much rather criticize someone's ideas very strongly than actually talk to them personally. I mean, honestly, in a way, if I were to go and criticize someone personally, it would be more of a sign of respect that I care enough about you that I'm willing to go and make myself suffer in order to help you. I'd say, you know, like, like with, with my kids, like, you know, it's, it's rare that I am in conflict with them, but I will actually deliberately be in conflict with them. If I think there's that they're doing something bad because I love them so much that I'm willing to endure the bad feelings of not being in harmony with another person. Whereas, you know, for a stranger, you know, like I'm, I'm the kind of person that if you run your shopping cart into me, I'll say sorry to you. I just don't want to be in conflict with it with a random stranger. Um, so, you no, know, possibly, you know, possibly you might go and say I'm mor- morally failing and I'm by not standing up for myself more. Honestly, like I do have some other pieces that I've just written on the role of misunderstandings in human life and I take that very seriously. like I think that I probably accidentally do harmful things to people frequently just because I'm not paying enough attention to others. and when someone does something like that to me, like if, if it's just one time, like I very forgiving and say, well, like I probably would have also, failed to go and notice that they were trying to cross the street, And so I'm not going to get mad at them when they failed to notice when I was trying to cross the street. It's not that big of a deal anyway. Um, you know, so, I mean, the, like the, the real strong blame comes from people you know, it is your job to go and pass laws to go and decide who gets to, who has to go to jail for doing seemingly harmful, harmless things. And you don't have any curiosity at all about whether or not you ought to be doing that.
0: Yeah. And they and they chose this life too. It's not like we have a cast yeah. of politicians or yeah, activists no, or anybody. Right. You, know, you chose a life where you no. go around telling people what to do without thinking very carefully about uh, about, <laughs> about. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, quite, you know, quite right. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, like you.
1: Know, I mean, you know, there there is this you know, odd idea that well, politicians they have that job because there's nothing else on earth they could do. Like that's wrong. Like they they've got good ideas, no, of course, they've got yeah. good connections. They could. There's a lot of things they could do. Uh, it wouldn't involve getting to rule over others, and that's why they like those jobs. But you know the idea of this is their only option in life is, is ridiculous. Or again, the idea that they are not in some sense talented. Right? they are they are talented, you know, like in some way. it's not you know, like it's, it's I will say a lot of their talents are are there there's great skill in things that I think people shouldn't be working on. <laughs>
0: you
1: know great skill in manipulating human emotions. All right, great. I I I I'm big I'm big enough to grant that you're good at that, but have you or are you big enough to wonder about whether that is a good skill to hone?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Everything is manipulating human emotions to a certain extent, but it could mm-hmm. be, you know, you could be a salesman of, of carpeting yeah. or, or something rather than rem- member of Congress. Yeah. Speaking mm-hmm. of kids, I, re- I remember, I liked, I liked one of your, I think it was maybe the last essay in mm-hmm. Politician Theory, or one of the last essays where you talk about if you're uh, weird. Um, no, actually that's the last essay are, like, in Labor Econ Versus the World. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I, I love that. It's like, it's like if you're the weirder you are, the less likely you are to find people who are like you, which is less true today with the internet mm-hmm. but still true, mm-hmm. sort of, true to a certain extent. Uh, and, you know, if you, I love the 99.9, if you're at the 99, the correlation is like, you have a, tr- you have a uh, table, like you're 99.99th percentile of weirdness. I think I qualify. I won't speak for you, but I think, I think, I think I'm there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the correlation is only, you know, R equals, you know, point, point 0.5. Then your kid's going to be like, it's, some, it's very high. It's like 90th or 90th yeah. on, uh, on average. And I just thought. That, that's that's really cool, <laughs> that is like really cool. it's well, like I mean, you know you, you make people my second thing.
1: book is selfish reasons to have more kids that was i think an idea that i came up with after writing the book and i was saying you know look you're like you're know, given how strong genetics are one of the best ways to create to get to get people like you is to have more kids and they will tend to be like you especially if you also find a spouse who has the traits that you would desire in your children um, you know, this is one of one of my favorite pieces of self-help is to focus on finding a spouse who has the traits that you would like to see in your children, uh, rather than more superficial traits that people, especially men, tend to focus on of just looks. And I say, well, you know, yes, you can. You know, we can much, much, much more important to focus on personality. And not only as I would say is personality much more important for a marriage because you're going to be with this person for a long time, and their personality is going to be a lot more stable than it looks, but also
0: you probably don't care that much about what your kids look like, but you care about their personalities a lot. No, I care. I care a lot about what my kids look like. I think that's, (laughs) I don't think that's a, that's a universal uh, Hmm. preference actually. I think, uh, yeah. Most uh, people get used to how their kids look pretty easily. If your kid is a big nose or something, you can get used to that, but getting used to your kid being lazy, that's hard. (laughs) I I guess you do get used to it, but I, I, you know, it's just like any other trade. It's like, you get activated to a lot of things, but no, the, the beauty thing is important. you know, I, I, I do have a sort of, maybe this is one place maybe we'll develop at some point. I think, I think I have a, uh, more than a lot of libertarians, a lot of rationalists, a lot of people sort of that I talk to, I think I'm, I I put more emphasis on aesthetics, but both like physical and like moral and like, you know, artistic, like that's like, you know, sort of a, a more of a important part of my worldview. But yeah, that's, that's a conversation for, for another time. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Do your mature male friends have to be good looking too, Richard? <laughs> they don't have to be good looking. Look, it's, 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 it's I put like there's a scale. Like it's it's I put up slightly more on the scale than I do uh, than other people uh, tend to. I think, and actually, a part of it is I think that we all do to you know more or less. I think it's one of those things that you know I'm, I'm sort of a little bit more honest about it, or maybe I'm not. But you know, I have I'm open to the idea that you know I just genuinely do care about this you know more than more than other people, and you know I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, you see uh you know, if you talk to people from like traditional sites, often it's like, it's like very clear. It's like, you know, my son and like, instead of it being like, Oh, he's a smart guy. It'll be like, he's handsome. He's tall. He has, you know, this mm-hmm. color eyes. I mean, it's, it, it's, uh it's not that unusual sort of from a world historical perspective for that to be sort of a cultural preference. I think we're on the, we're on the other side of the spectrum. We're more like, <laughs> no, it's like terrible to say I'd rather have a you know pretty daughter than an ugly daughter. Yeah. I mean, it'll be a, Reasonable point, but if you ra- rather rather
1: you know, go, rather you know, be- beautiful but hateful versus ugly but likable, you know uh, I know it's it's, it's, it's a,
0: <laughs> I, do any, it. I mean, I you, know, know like
1: really. you might you might say that you can't easily adapt so much to your spouse, but to your child, I think you can adapt to the tone that it looks very easily. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I, perso- I think, personality personality in anyone yeah. is actually hard to adapt to. It's hard, like if someone has a personality that bothers you, if you know. Often, actually, it just feels worse and worse over time. It's, you know, rather than the usual story of hedonic adaptation, you get used to it. See, that's one of the things you don't get used to. My big takeaway from happiness is the main – if you want to be happier, the main thing to focus on is spending as much time as possible around people whose company you enjoy. This is something that does not get old in the same way that a granite countertop or a Mercedes gets old.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, when you're thinking about uh, yeah, I, I guess that that framework works, makes sense for selfish reasons to have more kids. If you're also considering just you know the the quality of life of the kid, then you know looks you know raise a little nice. bit, even though it's not as important. Yeah, I mean, like, you, I mean, I
1: mean, of course. You, so yeah. you
0: know, like you know, that, and you
1: know, if there are environmental things you can get orthodontia for your kids. So you know, with my kid, you know, with with my kids a lot as well. What's I, mean, I think this will help you. Like I don't care what your teeth look like, and I and that's not just social desirability bias. <laughs> the last thing I've ever spent a minute of my time thinking about is God, my kids' teeth. I don't know how to cope with <laughs> these teeth. Like, this is not like I do not feel that way at all. But if you were to say, well, it's going to be hard for them to marry well if they don't have good teeth, it's like all right, um, at least let's let's work. Like, is that true? That's my, that's my first reaction. Uh, my wife actually has just taken the initiative and has gotten orthodontia for all our kids, even though i am not convinced any of my sons needed it really. Um, so <laughs> uh, my, my my daughter probably I just say there's a lot bigger gains for her. So you know I maybe I would have done her uh, get, gotten it for her. Even there um, you know, with my kids, you know, like once, once they're old enough just to understand, uh, well, I will often say, look, I think this is a good
0: idea, but it's your body. What do you want to do? Okay, so on that note, what's the next, what's the next, uh, uh, uh the, the blog books? Uh, ah, what are the, others? Some yes, of the other? others? The next, next one on is going to
1: be your favorite, Richard. It's called Don't Be a Feminist Essays on Genuine Justice, <laughs> All right? And the subtitle <laughs> no is, you know, the subtitle is, of course, a reference to genuine justice as opposed to social justice, or what I, in the book, call the social injustice movement. Uh, the, the first essay is the only, it, it is, it is a totally original essay. I actually showed you a draft of it. Uh, but the, the, letter, the essay is called "Don't Be a Feminist: A Letter to My Daughter." I have thought for many years about talking about feminism with my daughter. She's still only ten years old, so she's not very interested in this stuff yet. But I said I want the essay to be ready for the day she asks the question, right? And I wanted to write in a way that would be accessible for her, but also give a good review of what I think is the relevant evidence. Uh, you know the, the gist of this essay, but it just starts with, "Well, what's a feminist anyway?" There is. You know, there you are, there there you know there there's the standard definitions you got on wikipedia It's just the view that says that men and women should have equal uh, equal political economic social rights right and there i say look, we've actually got public opinion surveys finding that 95% of all people who d- who deny being feminists agree with that therefore this is a terrible defining trait it's like saying feminism is the view the sky is blue it's like what well, that does not th- what it, that is not what distinguishes you from other from your viewpoint from other viewpoints so i propose that the real defining trait of feminism is the view that society treats women less fairly than men. And, uh, for, and, you know, just you know, intuitively, like you just think about, you know, any feminist you've ever met, if you were to say, so do you believe that society treats women less fairly than men? I think you would get about 95% affirmative on that at least. And on the other hand, out of people who say they are not feminists, you know, I think you would get 95% of either, I don't know, maybe somewhat or just No, Right. So I think this is really the, ver- the very distinguish- distinguishing question on being a feminist or not being a feminist. And then from there, I say, all right, well, when we put it that way, then it's really an empirical question of how does our society actually treat men versus women? And there's, of course, a standard list of the ways that society treats women unfairly, supposedly. And I have that list. So you know, they get paid less, they're doing worse jobs. And then I point out there's also a much less discussed list of socii- ways in which society seems to treat women men a lot less fairly than women, things on child custody or conscription, right? Or uh, the percentage of, uh, percentage of men who are in prison. And that's one where you know, I'm hoping it will immediately lead readers to say, well, wait a second. Isn't it the case that 90% of people in prison are men because men just commit so much more and much more serious crime? And like, yeah, they do. And once you're willing to admit that kind of argument into this discussion, we are going to apply it to every single one of the complaints and see how well they actually stand up, right? And so I spent a lot of time going over the evidence on those and just saying, in the end, it really doesn't look like there is overall much of a difference in the way that modern Western societies treat men versus women in terms of any plausible measure of overall fairness. And then from there, there's a question like, why do I care so much about my daughter's opinion on this anyway? And that's where I say I do think that having this false view that women are being treated very badly isn't, you know, first of all, bad for the believer. I think it does wind up filling you with antipathy and self-pity. But I say also I don't want you to be an unfair person. I don't want you to be someone that is blaming other people for what's wrong with your life when it is up to you in order to go and make your life work. And, of course, I also don't like the idea of a – ideological movement turning you against your father and your brothers who have always taken wonderful care of you as i'm confident my daughter will agree right so my daughter's 10 like at least at this age for view of me is as favorable as i think i deserve (laughs) highly favorable and sometimes i say now like when you get a bit older there's going to be people in school that are going to try to turn you against me and say that your dad is terrible and she's like that's ridiculous and i say well i think it's going to happen and she said, no, like, like anyone who says that is terrible. And I'm like, well, you go, girl. But uh, I want, I want, I want to <laughs> I w- I be ready. Uh, so that's the lead essay in that book. And then there are a bunch of other pieces that I've written more in the last few years about the way that. The so-called diversity inclusion movement works. I have one on the uniformity and and and, and exclusion movement, which is I think, what it work, is in practice. I have another one that I like quite a lot on just comparing the McCarthy loyalty oaths to the wokeness oaths that schools are trying to impose on professors, and is pointing out that the McCarthy oaths were very mild compared to what they're trying to ram down our throats now. Oh, yeah, and you know the McCarthy oaths, it, it like it. The, it, all that required is to say that you are not a member of a group that was dedicated to the violent overthrow of the US government. <laughs> so all that you had to say. Right, that's what those cases were about. All right. So, you know, the Communist Party USA was, of course, was such a party. And so you'd have to deny that you were in that party, but there was nothing in those loyalty oaths that would preclude you from just being a philosophical Marxist Leninist who didn't belong to a group, much less a Marxist or a communist or anything else. It uh, didn't require you to actually sign on to a whole worldview. Uh, on the other hand, the kinds of stuff that I get from my, from my university, uh, where they say, you know, you know anti-racism will be the foundation for every, for every policy, every course, everything that's happening in this university. I'm like, hmm, does this mean that you're going to go and edit my syllabus? Uh, like, what's the plan here? Um, uh, you know, so far, nothing's happened. Hopefully it never happens, but it does make me wonder, like, you know, like are they going to try to go and crush me? And, um, so there's you know, also going to be part of that book uh, the, the that the part called being Beccarian where I just talk about the work of Gary Becker on discrimination, and applications of it to a wide range of social social issues. Some of which Becker might have uh, even backed away from. But uh, you know, I'm sometimes you feel like you're a better you know better Beccarian than Gary Becker himself, or you're a better advocate of a view than the original person. The original person still is kind of tied to. Older ways of thinking, but you can say, "No, you've really shown us the way." You know,
0: there was a there was a, a an interesting article in Forbes in the early 1990s. It was actually written, funnily enough, by uh, Peter Brimlow, the guy who writes, uh, v, mm-hmm. who runs V Dare now, yeah, Yeah, and, uh, and, of yeah. and it, it's really funny because the, it was about it was actually a good article. It was about the anti discrimination laws and their costs on corporate America. And mm-hmm. they interviewed Gary Becker, um, and they asked him a few times, and it, it just seemed like the tone was like. He agreed with like Brimlow's like anti you know anti the civil rights stuff, but he like was like too afraid to say. Anything. <laughs> it really, you could it really comes out in the article that he he really was he it like you know you, you apply Becker you know his writings his principles um, you know and then like he just sort of doesn't want to go with it. And then like in the article they're like oh a, a, a professor who's less afraid is like Richard Epstein, and they go into Richard. <laughs> Epstein. Richard <laughs> Epstein just has these quotes about like how terrible and stupid it all is. So it's an interesting article you could find it online if you're interested. Oh yeah, yeah the uh, the uh, the the social ju- the the social ju- so the so the first book is about so this book is about social justice generally the um the uh uh the um it, it's interesting because like do men do you treat men and women you know uh, do we treat one more fairly than the other because it's like which we talk about statistical discrimination so that exists right men are treated mm-hmm. as more violent and so like if you you know, if you frame the question, you sort of have to establish whether you think statistical discrimination mm-hmm. against uh, individuals based on the group characters before you even have this conversation, if that's quote unquote unfairness, right? And you sort of have to set those terms. I don't think it is. But like, you know, if you do think that's unfair, then I think, okay, you have all these differences. But then even if you do that, um, you still have to say, well, men are treated also like based on their statistical categories. And then it's just sort of weighing, you know, weighing the like whose statistical discrimination ends up being heard more. But, you know, the way I like to look at it is like, statistical discrimination is fine. We should be okay with it in every circumstance. And if it's like, you know, we treat... one group more criminal than the other, even though there's no crime rate differential, that we could say is an injustice, right? But I mm-hmm. think just being discriminated against based on your membership of a group, in sort of cost benefit terms, we all do that. I mean, you're a George Mason professor. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, a, a young, a young male. I mean, people are treating us like our based on our characteristics all the time, and it's it's mm-hmm. just it's just logical. I mean, it's just you know, it's just uh, whatever what rational agents would do and have a right to do. Right, I mean, I would amend that just a little bit in the sense of suppose
1: that at a very token cost you could get the individuating information, and then you wouldn't need to rely upon statistics anymore. And you say, "Yeah, well, I could actually spend ten seconds to go and double check this, but I'm just going to go and screw you over because you're a man." Say, "All right, that's that sounds pretty pretty bad, but yeah, you know, but it's it's one where you like you you need to be mindful of like how what would the cost be to this person of actually going." And finding out what's going on at the individual level, if it's enormous cost, then I'd say, you're exactly right. It's just unreasonable to expect a person yeah, who is was walking, walking, walking down, walking alone into the scary area of town to say, well, I don't know for sure that this guy's going to attack me, so I better assume not. But on the other hand, if it's one where you can just do a quick Google and say, okay, so now I know what's going on. Of course, with business, we don't really need to moralize about it. Businesses, naturally, if they can get the individual information easily, they'd rather do that because they can make more money by spend, you know, getting a little, spending a little cost on the information and then they can make an even better decision. I actually do have a piece that's going to be in that Don't Be a Feminist book, specifically on this ethics of cisco-discrimination uh, so I started off with just asking readers when they thought it was okay to do it, and then I gave my view, which is you know similar to yours, probably a bit more moderate. Although maybe you may, maybe maybe we're actually in agreement uh, about like uh, you know, if you you know, you know if there's some token cost that you could do in order to find out the truth, mm-hmm. and the person says, "Well, I just don't feel like
0: it." Uh, I was like, "Well, why not? <laughs> What's the big deal?" Uh, yeah, yeah. Although I f- I worry that when we put that burden, we say, okay, we're going to sort of scrutinize this decision to treat men Mm -hmm. unfairly or to treat women unfairly. We don't do that for everything. Like we don't say, oh, you know, you treated an elderly person more, you know, differently than, or we do, we do have age discrimination, Mm -hmm. but whatever. These people who wear this color shirts and that color. Once we start questioning, like whether Mm -hmm. people are using the right level of calibration, it's like we are, we are on the road, I think to, Mm -hmm. we have to decide on which dimensions we, we care about. And then we've already made a decision, and I don't think there's any rationality to say, oh, yeah. you know, we care about uh, race discrimination, but not height discrimination. To me, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, we just have to sort of take a hands off, or otherwise we're, we're going to be litigating this stuff till the end of time.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, you and I are definitely of one mind on the evil of these laws in terms of pers- in terms of personal behavior. Uh, you know, this, is, this is one where, you know, again, you, you might be worried as soon as you start – you know, even judging individual behavior at all like you know even at the level of norm if that could spiral out of control and turn into the horrible system of discrimination laws that we got I think that's probably a bit too, a, a bit too paranoid uh, yeah in terms of you know you know like I mean, in, a, in a way like, like in all these cases you know like I'm just thinking about you know introducing someone to a friend and they say, okay well, I don't want to meet him because he wears a pink shirt and they're like all right look, look dude just what's the big deal like like he's a cool
0: guy. <laughs> right? Yeah, and my and level of judgment. I like cool like, I don't care if you see, I don't care if he's a cool guy like a pink shirt. And,
1: oh, come on, just relax. Look, we'll get over yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I would say it was weird. And then, then like any other characteristic, it would just be it would just be weird. It would not be like a moral, you know, a strong moral uh, condemnation. It would just be you know that that's the way I would I would prefer to just see all these things uh, in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's interesting. Are you the so the book is about social justice stuff more generally? It's but the title is going to be uh, "Don't Be a Feminist." Yeah, "Don't Be a Feminist: Essays on Genuine
1: Justice." So you know, "Don't Be a Feminist" is the lead essay, but it's sort of you know, all of my previous essays relevant to these, you know, relevant to these issues.
0: Anything else new
1: in there, or just that essay? Let's see yeah, so that's you know, so you know, the, so you know, the "Don't Be a Feminist" is the one new essay, and then again, like you know, the main value that I see myself providing with these books is I go went through seventeen years worth of posts picked out the top 5% and then organized them. And also, you know, like even in the order that they appear in the book, I tried to make them build on each other, try to get good pacing. So, uh, that's what, that's what I have in mind. And, you know, you know, just realize that, you know, like, you know, yes, you know, someone who was totally free to go and just read all my old blog posts with Pat without paying anything but i do think that if <laughs> no to i'm not, not it, making it, a case yeah, for yeah, that i think i think you know people like like when, who like my work you know like for them like you know the marginal cost of just getting all the to- all the the, the the best pieces on a, a, an area between two covers you know a lot of people say you know it's just a really fun experience and there's a lot of pieces that they just missed or forgot about and so
0: i feel like i'm delivering of course, to yeah i money. mean like yeah, the Kindle, uh, the Kindle of your two books, I think was like ten dollars each. So if your time yep. is worth, you know, combing through years and decades of blogs yeah, yeah, to find the best yeah. ones, that, you know, you know, I don't think your time is worth worth all that uh, all that much. Are you gonna try to get this? Like I was thinking, I'm thinking of like I wrote this essay, I would try to get it. Um, I would put it online too, and I would mm-hmm. try to get attention from it because I, you know, I think mm-hmm. that these. This, this, this is potentially inflammatory are you gonna try to sort of uh, uh, make it sort of a uh, an object of conversation are, are you writing it in yes. a way where you think hmm it would be great if people actually responded aggressively or are oppositely like I you know I, I, I want to sort of tone down a little bit for
1: to not bring yeah, it no so you know, like, like like I'm always shooting for as much attention as possible you know, I don't want. Angry, hateful attention, but I'm also mindful of you can't really decide what kind of attention you're going to get, or really when you, you know, when you get a lot of good attention, you also open yourself up to people who are angry or even crazy. I actually did originally try pitching this piece to a few magazines like The Atlantic, things like that, but in the end, I felt like I would have to go and tone it down way too much for it to really be the piece that I wanted to write for my daughter to read one day. So I said, well, why don't I just go and?" write it and then put it into and make it the title essay of this book. Um, yeah, I mean, your idea of just, you know, like, like giving the, you know, putting the whole essay on the internet, or just, just putting it on my blog, I mean, I'm sort of basically weighing between putting long highlights from the essay or putting the whole essay up. I mean, I, I would say that probably the ultimate wisdom of, of the internet is that giving stuff away comes back to you and redounds to your benefit. So maybe I should. Uh, maybe, maybe I just should. And you know, so much so, you know, it's you know, there's a lot more people that will read the essay and say that they want the whole book rather than to read the essay and say, okay, well, now that I got that, I don't feel like buying the book. So yeah, you're probably right. I mean, you were definitely right about how I should move my blog to Substack, and I was very foolish not to listen to you the first time. But I do have the wisdom to repent. Right? You know, this is one of my saving graces. I'm not afraid to admit that I'm that I was wrong. So. Know, Substack's been working out great for me. I did get an email from some guy who felt like he was totally burned by Substack. And I was like, hmm. All right, that's interesting. But uh, burned yeah, in what burned way? Yeah, you know, like you just had a bunch of weird complaints. <laughs> you know, saying like like your email list isn't nearly as portable
0: as they make it out to be. And what was no, you can you can you can get it in an Excel sheet. You can just go to the site and yeah, you can just download. That
1: that's what he told me. He told me like yeah, they uh, they made it seem really portable, but it wasn't. And
0: uh, you know, so like, so I'll say I have yeah on the substack. I've taught. I mean, I you know who knows what can be guaranteed. You know, if you can guarantee that people will always be uh, in favor of free speech, but I will say two things in favor of substack. One is that if you look at their top drawer, drawer uh, top. Um, uh, most popular uh, uh, Substacks—they're all people who are have had trouble with mainstream publications. Mm-hmm. So it's like Glenn oh, yeah. Greenwald, it's Andrew Sullivan, it's mm-hmm. Barry Weiss. I mean, they're just the, so it's like it's not like it's like a Spotify with Joe Rogan, where they could you know start censoring him because you know Joe Rogan's the biggest thing on Spotify. He's not their whole business by a, a long mm-hmm. margin. Uh, and the other thing is, I've actually you know I've talked to the people, some of the people at Substack, and you know to the extent that you know they, it doesn't prove anything, but you know they seem genuine and they and they do care about free speech. It's not something that they it's mm-hmm. not a strategy they accidentally stumbled upon uh, right and, and again when you're persona, giving
1: everyone yeah. their all, the full access to their mailing list is a nice pre-commitment that if people feel mistreated they can just easily take their whole subscriber list and go someplace else e-
0: yeah ex- exactly so okay yeah so i yeah so i would i mean so yeah as far as like editors in the atlantic and toning stuff down i've written a lot of op-eds in recent years i've written a lot of stacks. my sub stacks get you know orders of magnitude more attention than uh op-eds it makes me think I, I have a better inclination than most even, even uh, than your news even, even than your newsweek pieces oh even more than new york times and washington post i mean the the uh so, you know the best performing sub stacks are way better than the best uh op-eds even the even in the most important hmm. newspaper so uh Impressive. yeah I, I mean i think i i don't know what it is i mean maybe i maybe i'm just better without an editor or maybe it's just you know i uh, you know and the things i write i mean like no editor is going to take some of the stuff. It's like it's often. I'll be. I'll think the you know the best mix is like four thousand words, which is like some mix of stream of consciousness plus jokes plus serious analysis. Like you know, a good Substack will often be that. And you know, mm-hmm. who's going to publish that? That doesn't really fit into mm-hmm. anything. But sometimes you know, I strike gold. And you know, you're a creative writer and a good writer. So I think you know, you you're you're in a place where you should be writing Substacks. You shouldn't be. You shouldn't be pitching uh, as many op-eds. Mm-hmm.
1: Hmm. I mean, I will say that. My books have, you know, with academic publishers, are, you know, are like have done. You know, I, I've got. I, it's it's clear to me. Like I've gotten a lot of value out of those. I could not have gotten anywhere near the attention yeah. I got if I tried self publishing those. No, no
0: books. Sorry, books are a different question. Yeah. Yes. Right. I know I know that, I, I know that
1: you books. actually were thinking that perhaps you made a mistake by going with an academic publisher for your public public choice and the theory of grand strategy. Right. Is that the correct yeah. title?
0: Uh, Public choice theory and the illusion of grand strategy. Yes, public choice theory and the illusion of grand strategy. Um, yeah, it, w- it ended up being like 150 bucks and sold, you know, it was, it sold better than just about any $150 book, you know, that I could find. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, it was on the list and it was like list top political science books and every other political science books is like $10 or like $20 or 30 yeah. In the top 100, it was like the only one priced in ridiculous amount. So it didn't mm-hmm. sell great, but it sold great for its, uh, mm-hmm. uh, price. And, you know, that's, that's the compromise I had to make because I, I published it before I, you know, could get real book deals. And now, you know, that, that won't be a problem. So I'll, I'll have, uh, in the future, uh, uh, appropriately priced books that hopefully hopefully will do very well. Yeah, I still recommend writing books because books a book is a is you're sending a message to the world that okay, I can write a lot of subsects, I can write a lot of tweets, I can write a lot of articles. This is sort of canon. Like I'm taking the ideas, I'm putting them together, and mm-hmm. you know people will find your book. You know, they, like if they're interested in Brian Kaplan, their address to Richard Hanania. The first thing they'll look at is probably what books have they published, and then see if they're see if they're interested in that.
1: Right. And then, and then the signal is important. So getting this outside certification from some high status
0: source, it's easy to pretend like that's not important, but it is. Yeah, it, it, it is unquestionably. Uh, so, okay. So you have the social justice book and you said there's eight of them. That's, that's, yeah, the, that's yeah, there's, there's going to be eight. All right. Let's see. So if I can
1: remember the titles to all the other ones, let's see. So there's one called voters as mad scientists, essays on political irrationality. That will be probably the fourth book that comes out. Let's see. There is a book called Self-Help is Like a Vaccine, Essays on Self-Help. Or so, 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 so essays on actually, no, wait, no, that's no, I, I have a better title, actually. What is it? So the main, the main title is Self-Help is like a vaccine. And then the subtitle. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't have a subtitle, this repeated, repeated word in the in the main title. But you know, that's that's where I bring together all of my self-help pieces. And then there's one called You Have No Right to Your Culture, Essays on the Human Condition. Uh, so, this, nice, this is, nice. <laughs> so this is one where like one big section is just all of my travelogue pieces, which many people say are some of uh, some of my favorite things that I write uh, their favorite things that I write. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those you know, are like, fine my, my country and I say, All right, here's what I thought about Panama. A lot of people say, Oh yeah, I love just hearing about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm just like a guy who went to Panama and walked around and wrote and said some things, but um, it seems like there's enough interest in those pieces that and they're, they're popular enough that I, I want uh, to have more, you know, have more people get the chance to see them. Let's see. And then let's see. One of them is called, let's see. I believe it's, uh, you know, let's see. I think it's, you know, Pro Market and Pro Business is, I believe, the title. Uh, so, mm, essay, I mean, Essays on Laissez Faire. And I think I'm missing one. Let's see. But anyway, so that's, uh, but, you know, there, there will be eight eventually. They're kind, they're coming. Uh, yeah, I think we've hit. They're coming soon. They're in, like every every few months, aren't they? Because yeah, they're, they're, every, uh, every few months. Yeah, between the- yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So I think you know, basically all eight will be done when you know, buy. You, know, you know, should be available by twenty twenty four anyway. And then there'll be some other more you know, original books coming out. But I mean, this was a case where I just said, you know, like I'm sitting on all this stuff that you know, the, like you know, a few people will go back and, and read old blogs, but hardly anyone. So I sort of wanted just to you know, really send out the signal of, I think these are the piece of things that I've written in uh, over the last 17 years that really stand the test of time and see what people think.
0: Okay, great. So we have, uh, that to look forward to. Okay. Anything uh, you want to, um, tell the, uh, readers anywhere or the listeners where they can fi- find you, follow you besides, you know, probably oh, yeah. subscribe to your Substack and follow you on Twitter, I guess. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, both of the books we talked about today, Name, namely, uh, Labor
1: Econ versus the World and How Ever Politicians. These are Amazon exclusives. So just go to Amazon, 12 bucks for the paperback, nine ninety nine for the ebooks. Uh, all my books are available on Amazon. Uh, so, you know, I just, you know, fine if you want to buy them someplace else, but I, you know, I'm puzzled as to why anyone would bother. <laughs> it's all on Amazon, super easy. <laughs> Um, yeah. I've got my so my Substack is bet on it. So that's what I'm writing every day, even when I'm here in Italy, on half vacation, I'm teaching, but I'm you know, you know, easier schedule than normal. I'm still trying to keep up the blog. And then I'm on Twitter. So you know, Brian underscore Kaplan. Um, and then in terms of uh, where to find me. So actually, in the US right now, I've been dividing my time between three different locations. I'm still normally in Fairfax, Virginia. But actually, I've been spending a lot of time in Austin, Texas, because the Salem Center for Policy University of Texas is the sponsor of the new blog. And uh, so I've got great friends there. And actually, I know you've got great friends there now too, Richard. So we're both on their list of research associates or whatever we're called. I've also been spending a lot of time (laughs) in uh, Tennessee. I am be a visiting professor at uh, Middle Tennessee State University which is right next to where my older sons go to school at Vanderbilt University. So I've got some former students who are professors at MTSU and I've been spending a lot of time hanging out with them uh, this past year and probably will for the next few years to come. So basically if you want to meet up in person, I'm in DC, I'm in Austin, I'm in around Nashville. Uh, and of course also when I'm traveling, I normally announce it. Uh, my, if you go to Twitter, my pinned tweet is one just saying, if you ever see me in public, please introduce yourself making friends is working out swimmingly for swimmingly for me so far. Right. Now you can imagine what the worst people on Twitter immediately wrote back to that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, so far, how do you know? So a stranger won't come up and murder you. Ha! Huh? It's like, man,
0: you people are terrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, getting just, to, uh, you know, get- <laughs> I did the one thing where I asked people to pick me up from uh, LAX. I think I told you about this, and then mm-hmm. people are like, "Oh yeah, you know, good luck, you know, good luck staying alive." I'm like, "No, I had like a nice, you know, five choices of people who are a hell of a lot better than taking a an Uber." Um, oh, and yeah. so, yeah, yeah. You, yeah I mean, honestly, like, like I know you. Know, you recently wrote wrote a piece
1: uh, in praise of Twitter, and I'll say, yeah, like social media has been fantastic for me. In the 1980s, I would I would have been stuck at best being some professor writing stuff that hardly anybody read and because of social media, I can get, you know, a medium sized audience and I can do the work that I want to do. I don't have to go and write op eds for, uh, for for the New York Times or something like that, which would sort of be the pinnacle of what a professor could have gotten away with in the nineteen eighties. Now it's just a you know, much more decentralized system where you can be much more creative. And then on top of it, you know, like this really means that like every place in the world I go, I have friends. You know, I say, like, who do I know in Palermo? Who do I know? And, like, almost, oh you know, like, they like, say, like, you know, like if, as long as it's a city of, like, over 100,000 people, there's almost always somebody who says, yeah, I uh, want to meet up. Right? So, and for me, that's great. Uh, they, I mean, it's, you know, like, just, just the idea, that, like, all over the world, there's there's people that uh, that, that want to be friends and, you know, and, like, like, that I can meet new people. Like, like this is you know, such a blessing that, that we have, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, you know, Elon's going to make Twitter better, but... You know like you know, my main emotion towards Twitter is just gratitude that that it's a technology that allows someone like me to have an audience, which I couldn't have had in previous decades. Really, almost no matter how hard I tried.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. Yeah, Elon. I don't know. He's, he's saying some funny things. The stock price is becoming less confident that this is gonna this is gonna actually happen in the last uh, few days. Right. But you're right. I mean, even as Twitter as it is, um, is great. I remember, yeah, and to be able to the it's unparalleled for being able to. Uh, Build an audience. I remember I was I, when I was starting out on Twitter. I would get dunked on by like these people who had like mainstream media affiliations, and I'd be like, "Oh no, this is going to be unpleasant." You know, they're going to be, uh, you know, my mentions are going to be like really bad for a few days. And then one time I got dunked on by these people. I like, got out of habit. I'm like, "Oh no, here goes again." And then I looked and like, "Oh wait a minute, I have like twice as many followers as Sky. <laughs> I <Like, I'm> got <laughs> much stronger. Than, you know, you know, like they're afraid of getting dunked on by me. You know, it's not that I not that I use my power for evil purposes. Uh, but it's, ah, I see yeah, what you, you can.
1: You, ah, so I thought you were saying that yeah. you picked up a lot of new followers, but then you realize, wait a second, this person's actually a nobody, right? This person, yeah, without yeah it's people, a sort certain- of like, there are a lot of people who, without their institutional affiliation, are nothing. They have no actual, exactly. real, real, real dedicated fans. People read them because they're in a, you know, that they're in a venue that they read, but they don't actually care about that person very much. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And you, know, you really, really can see that there is this difference in fandom. You know, there's many professors that are in some sense famous, and yet hardly anyone actually likes what they're doing. Apparently.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that it's become a, a big thing. That, I mean, the, the people have become increasingly mediocre because the people who have talent to actually build an audience on their own, there's so many options for them to just set up a sub or or whatever. And sort of the people who are left behind at the, not that there aren't great some great writers left, um, but you know, there's there seems to be more positions at like legacy institutions, and there are like people who are mm-hmm. saying original, int- interesting things. So mm-hmm. A lot of these people are extremely mediocre and uh, and uninteresting. So, yeah, you took that question. You know, where can people find you? More literally than I expected, I thought you just going to say, "I you don't know." But that's great. I mean, that's great that you're open to meeting people. I, I'm the I'm the same way. I mean, people reach out sometimes, like, "Oh, you must get a hundred of these requests a day." Like, not really. I mean, I'm not not that famous. It doesn't happen that often. I can meet everyone who reaches out to me, and it's not that big of a drain of my time up until this mm-hmm. point. So it's uh, yeah, people sh- people shouldn't hesitate uh, on, on those things. Okay, cool. Well, it's great talking to you, Brian. I will keep reading right. everything uh, you write. Fantastic talking, uh, Richard. Keep uh, keep up the good work. Keep up the great
1: work. Uh, you, know, you really are like basically my favorite person to read. Where new thing, new things <laughs> from you come out, and I, you know, oh god, what, what's what's Richard going to say? This is exciting. Yeah. Uh, next next week, <sighs> I've got a critique of uh, one of your old, old old older people, but it's really just a piece from March coming out.
0: So I expect we can yeah. have some fun uh, debating that. Um, you know the best. Uh, the best thing about being a public figure, actually, it's like. You become like you meet your heroes, but then you sort of become like you know admired by your heroes, which is just yeah. such a unique experience. I mean, I've been reading you before I mean this is this is gonna get maybe too sappy here at the end for our, our listeners, oh, but whatever. I'm I'm <laughs> yeah. <Don't> be, <laughs> it's just it was, just <laughs> let it all
1: flow out. Look, look, men can cry too. I keep telling as I told you before, men can cry too, man. I cry <laughs> tears of joy. I'm
0: overwhelmed yeah. with the feelings of, of brotherhood, you know, like just the, the yeah. privilege. <laughs> Too much, too much pride. But I'll say, you know, like so. These people I read for a decade. I read you. I read Robin Hanson. I read Tyler Cohen. I read, you know, Stephen Pinker. And then it's like, you know, I become my own writer. And then they're, you know, they're heaping the same praise right back at me. That's, you know, that's, that, you know, how many people have had that experience? So I'm grateful, grateful for you, grateful for our friendship. And um, yeah, until next time.